Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Unbelievable. 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 They're not dated. These songs sound as fresh as they did then. I mean, I know that there's some moments in Sgt. Peppers and other things where it's clearly a 60s, you know, milieu, but I mean, hey Jude is, hey Jude, that's why I wanted to write a, a book about one song. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. However, Tammy is not with us today. And if you're a sharp-eared listener to the show, you know that means we've got a guest. Today, we're meeting up with an old friend, James Campion. James is an author, and he spoke to us about his last two books on Kiss and Warren Zevon. However, he's got a new one. It's titled, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of... Hey Jude, it's a deep delve into a single Beatles song, and it's worth every penny. So, for an hour, James Campion on Rock School. On the phone with me, James Campion. You may recognize the name if you're a sharp-eared listener. He has been on the show twice before with a book about Kiss and a book about Warren Zevon, but this time around, He's talking about the Beatles. Take a sad song, the emotional currency of Hey Jude. James, this is our third time talking, and it's good to hear from you. Uh, you know what? It's not a book promotion unless I talk to Professor Joseph Burns. <laughs> it's, the, it's the professor. Yeah, I make my kids use that term as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, look, uh, let's just have a conversation. I'm I'm a huge fan of the Beatles. I named my son after a Beatles song. So I have both sort of sycophanties, gee, aren't the Beatles great, to, wait a minute, what you said bothers me. So here we go. All right. Look, the Beatles have been hit every way since Sunday by every reporter and every academic known why would you go after the Beatles yourself? I don't even know if I should answer that question and just let it lie out there like a rhetorical balloon. Uh, Why would I do this? Why? Good question. Um, Why don't you answer it? Great question. <laughs> um, my best answer, and you might remember this, and I might even have told you when we were talking about my Warren Zevon book. When I had the Warren Zevon book out, all, everyone asked me, Why Warren Zevon? I think you did. Yeah. And I think my fun stock answer was, because there's enough damn Beatle books. That's why. Um, uh-huh. And then I turned around and wrote one. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it it's a good it, one. There's no two ways, you know, about it. It, it, it. If if you're a Beatles fan, and I am an, an incessant Beatles fan, you will enjoy the fact that the book is broken into the lyrics of the song. It, it deals only with Hey Jude. Any other song, what have you, is is to the side of it. 
but you went out of your way to break the chapters and such into the lyrics of the song blatantly. That was a choice you made. I mean, it seems like it's either great or your editor would have said, come on, James, really? (laughs) Um, Well, I liked it because I do believe, and I argue it in the book, and we'll have a nice discussion about that, that Hey Jude is sort of the culmination of everything the Beatles did great in a time when they sort of plateaued in the zeitgeist in 68. Whereas prior to that, from 63 up to 68, it was a, or really 67 with Sgt. Peppers, there was an ascent. If you look at it as a graph, it would be like an elevator going up, 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 up. And then there was a time it sort of plateaued and that second wave of the British invasion came in and it sort of challenged the Beatles. Uh, you know, the Who, the Kinks, all those, uh, you know, the, the emergence into a major pop band as the Rolling Stones were. And, you know, the Beatles were, as they were in the 50, late 50s, early 60s, influenced by American music, specifically black Southern American music, but they were especially in 68 uh, influenced by what the band was doing up in Saugerties, New York with Bob Dylan. Uh, eventually George Harrison would actually go out there and visit them. You know, this idea of stripping everything down and playing the instruments again. So, When the Beatles went to do Hey Jude, I feel they took everything they did from their early days of pop songs to their experimentation of Revolver into the apex of Sgt. Pepper's and sort of brought it into what they were doing in the White Album, but for a single, for one song, like they did with Love Me Do in 1962. So it kind of brought them back to their roots, but it also shows the culmination of everything they did well. And that's why I thought it was very important that each chapter talks about how the song reflects those different periods and those different aspects of the Beatles. You know, I would buy everything you said about it being a band, The Beatles, if you were talking about Revolver or Meet the Beatles. But I I think any Beatles fan has sort of slogged their way through the, what is it, nine-hour Get Back on Disney Plus. Right. At the point of this song... Doesn't it seem as if John Lennon just came in to yell obscenities over it and Ringo just did what he was told? Weren't the Beatles basically wings with the same members of the Beatles at this point? Isn't this really Paul McCartney? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. It has become that over the last 30, 40 years, whatever it's been. I saw Paul McCartney play it that very first time. You wouldn't even touch it. It was sacrosanct to touch many, many Beatles songs, as you know, throughout the entire Wings. He didn't even deign to play Beatles songs, even once he wrote, besides maybe Yesterday or I've Just Seen Your Face in the 70s when he was with Wings. He didn't even deign to play these songs until 1989 when he did the Flowers in the Dirt tour. And then he wrote a lot of those songs, as you know, with Elvis Costello, who was like, hey, man, you got to play Beatles songs for us Beatles fans. And when I went to see him play in Madison Square Garden that year and he cranked out Hey Jude, it was the first time not when he played I Saw Her Standing There or Fool on the Hill or Lady Madonna. It was the first time in that show where I felt like, holy mackerel, <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a room with a Beatle. The yes. Beatles seemed to come alive with that song. And I'm going to disagree with you a bit here, obviously, because I wrote the book. I think, <laughs> and Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone said it, this song's a drummer song, man. Ringo kicks in this song he kicks it up a notch i think it's a beatles song in the sense where i love the beautiful ooze and oz harmonies 
the, the you know the triple harmonies that they add to uh, to the verses i absolutely adore and i base the entire beginning and introduction of, of my book on the na na part which is longer than the actual paul mccartney ballad part which i think is the beatles on display they are fully immersed in this part they are swinging man and they were having so much fun they didn't want to stop which is why the song's over seven minutes and even john lennon who didn't write this song had to stand up in the studio and tell their producer george martin they're going to play the seven minutes of this song because we're the beatles he didn't say because paul mccartney's a great songwriter or this is a fun song he said they're going to play it because we're the beatles oh he's completely right a great beatles song and maybe i argue in the book the last great beatles moment before i believe after hey jude there's that slow descent in their relationships internally and also in their full immersion of controlling the entire pop zeitgeist and even though they did great stuff after hey jude certainly abbey road brilliant i even love let it be there is that sense that we're on the way out here whereas hey jude i think is still them at the height of their powers hey jude don't make it bad take a sad song and make it better remember to let it start to make it better hey jude don't be afraid you were made to go out and get her the minute you let her under your skin Let's talk about the na-na-na-na-na-na-na. And I, I just want to relate this to you. When I was in high school, we had a commons area. This was in Cleveland. And they would play the local radio station. And I remember distinctly, I was in a room with about seven of other my friends. And this song came on. And this is how odd we were. We took little pieces of paper and wrote the word na on two of them. And so for the four and a half minutes at the end that they're going, na, 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 we're taking these pieces of paper and pushing them forward and backwards uh, to, you know, to sort of entertain one another. Let's talk about the na, na, na. This is something that, you know, I'm an academic, I'm a professor, but I think academics have gotten a hold of and they've laid over it far more than what it was. I get the feeling, and again, in that Get Back, you saw how quickly the Beatles wrote songs. I think it was, I don't think there was a whole lot of thought out of it that just, this is kind of, this is kind of fun, this is kind of rocking, and they did it. Or was it this decision 
that was made that they knew would take them into the historical stratosphere of music? Wow. Great question. And there's a lot to unpack there. First yeah. of all, I wish I, had, I included your story in my book, because as you know, there are many cute anecdotes from people of all different walks, whether they're professors or songwriters or authors, that gave me these great little tidbits of how that song came into their lives or little moments where a bunch of people in a, in a town square burst into the nana. So I love that story. I well, call I me wish it was in my book. Call me before you produce the next book. Uh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I absolutely will. I got a right. quote from it. So, um, well, secondly, and you bring up a great point. There's a couple of things about the Nanas that I find uh, incredible. The number one thing is, as Paul joked when he was on the Colbert Report, which I put that that story on there where, where the K-pop band comes on there and they start singing uh, the Nanas. And, you know, he asks him, Colbert asks him, you know, why does this work? And he said, easy lyrics. And everybody laughs because that's classic, you know, scouse. Uh, you know, live a putley in humor, but let's be honest, he's right. Yeah. Anybody in any country, I talk about him playing it at the Kremlin. I talk about him playing at the White House, playing it at Glatsbury just a couple of months ago. Everybody and anybody can sing this. And it's not just that, Joseph. It's like everything that is 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 created with this. You make a good point. Paul wrote this song in about a day, day and a half. We know this because he drove up to comfort uh, you know, Julian Lennon and, and Cynthia Lennon after John leaves them for Yoko in like June 28, 29th, 1968. By July 2nd or 3rd, he's already playing it for the guys in Badfinger and the Duda Bonzo Band. And so holy crap, he wrote this thing in a couple of days. But then he's also a great craftsman. And that sing-along is not too far away from what he just wrote recently, which was Obla Di Obla Da, mm-hmm. or even All Together Now. He knows how to do a rousing chorale. But I think it's even more fascinating, finally, if I can wrap it up, if, uh, about the Nanas, and I'm sure we'll talk about more later, but <laughs> the Nanas in that record had to substitute the fact that the Beatles never played this thing live, which is why over the years it's become a McCartney staple, and he ends his shows with it, of course, getting everyone to sing it. But they, they had to capture that live feel, which I think is the reason why that video that he made with Michael Lindsay Hogway interviewed for the book, who also did Get Back, that he had to make it dynamic because people just couldn't see the Beatles anymore and they couldn't perform that song, but they were able to catch it in that video with everybody surrounding them singing the song to get what you were saying, to get at what you were saying, because this song would have been so powerful if the Beatles had played it in front of 60, 70,000 people. But in some weird way, I think they actually created that with the recording of this song and it comes to fruition in the fact that it was the longest running number one song in the history of america as far as the beatles were concerned it has been number one in more countries all over the world 18 or 19 that the beatles ever had so somehow this did hit a chord no pun intended that i don't even think paul could have been doing We need to take our first break and allow our affiliates to play their commercials, but we'll be back to continue talking with author James Campion about his new book, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude, on Rock School.
had what is arguably their greatest success since Beatlemania, if not larger, yet they still broke up. <laughs> That's so true. Um, you know, there are so many theories about that and stories, certainly to get into the weeds, the money, the contracts. Brian Epstein dying really was a huge blow. The original manager that took them out of the cavern in Liverpool and made them superstars. Also, the changing waves of the 1960s. The thing I love, a writer, and it was tough to build on the, the uh, on any kind of legacy of the Beatles. I was really trying to write about one song, but the Beatles is a big, big chunk of uh, of of history, of human history to take on because they really start to hit you in the early 60s. They kind of invent the 60s in a way. And they end by 1970, so they're, they're, they're bookended. We have a beginning, an arc, a denouement, an end. It's great for a writer. But if you think about the Beatles in that package, there, there, is, there are moments when it looks like they have gone either too far or far enough where they pull it back. They were able to reinvent themselves so many times. I think they were just plain exhausted at the end. And the great thing about that whole story is that they don't have, and I'm a Stones guy. I've always been a Stones guy. I think I, I said to you on the, on the show, it was with a kiss. I was like, the greatest rock and roll band of all time is the Stones, but they don't have an arc. They don't, they, you know, they're still going for crying out yeah. loud. They were recording in the, in the 2000s. So you don't got that nice, neat, you know, the same four guys, not, not people coming in and out like 90% of other bands, the same four guys for the same eight years. It's kind of compact and beautiful. I just think they ran it till as far as they can run it. Yeah, I, I had a, a friend of mine who is also an audiophile say that the Beatles were like a perfect steak. When it was done, you wanted one more bite. Right. Yeah, but they that's were so done. True. Yeah. Leave them wanting more. Yeah. yeah. That's a classic showbiz um, trope. And, and and they were aware of showbiz from, from the haircuts to the suits to the boots to the the oohs and the yeah, yeah, yeahs, and, and even the way that Paul fashioned songs, the Beatles fashioned songs. You know, you're, you're, you're a song guy, a songwriter, a musician. You know how important the fact that when you ask somebody how Hey Jude goes, it goes, hey Jude, da-da-da-da. It's the name of the song. It's the melody. It's the whole thing right there off the bat, just like they did with She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, or Help, I Need Somebody, all those songs. I think I picked out something like, 55 or 60 Beatles songs that start with the title of the song and get you right into it. And right. that's just showbiz, folks. They understood the idea of a hook. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'll be up. honest with you, Hey Jude is all hook. Let me let me go back to, I think now three answers. You talked about McCartney making his way up to talk to Cynthia and Julian, the forgotten Lennon child, who, who by the way, uh, his album Valot is just gorgeous. But I agree. my question is, why was McCartney so interested when you see again I'm, i keep going back to that disney plus but i knew this as well especially through the paul is dead stuff he seemed like a family man john did not is that the reason he cared about julian so much yeah that's the that's the, the answer nailed right there what i tried to do in the book as you know is i tried to find out why and it's it's not that complicated paul and John both lost their dear mothers as teenagers. For Paul, she was like, she was a nurse and everyone in the neighborhood, anybody that his biographers told me in the book that had any contact with this woman said she was like an angel. 
And one minute she's there, she gets breast cancer and she dies. And for John, Julia was his you know, birth mother. He, had the, he was raised by his aunt Mimi, as we know. His birth mother was a free spirit. Like John, and she, you know, she taught him and 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 and, and uh, you know the ukulele, and she and she she pushed him into music and said, "Do whatever you want. You're an artist. Be a free spirit." Then she's killed, uh, run, you know, hit by a car, and as and when he's 17, so that affects both these young men, and I believe that they put a lot of this stuff in their early, especially their early love songs, and I think the fact that Paul had a father who was a musician and a family that spent weekends and holidays around the piano playing the American songbook and old show tunes and Irish ditties and English classics. He was seeped in music for music. When Paul says, take a sad song and make it better. He's talking about his childhood, his mother dying, but he had that support. John, his father left him. Ironically, at the same age, he left Julian Hmm. and went off and his mother dies, and he didn't really have that support. He didn't have that familiar connection. So what he says to Paul, which I quote in the book, I don't know how you play with my son. I don't know how you do it. He didn't have the tools emotionally to do it. There's, a, there's an anecdote that Paul tells a few times that I put it in my book. In 1974, when he reconciled with John after all the Beatles' Michigan, Paul John runs up to him and hugs him and whispers in his ear, touching is good. It took John to almost 35 years of age to realize what love was. And Paul knew it instinctively as a young man. And if you listen to a lot of his songs, a lot of the empathetic songs, your mother should know, Lady Madonna, Eleanor Rigby. You don't get that from John. John's an insular artist that expresses the experience he's having. Whereas Paul, he's talking about everything around him. Take mm-hmm. take the, the double A side, where they wrote about their childhoods. Strawberry Fields Forever. That's John yeah. getting ethereal. Paul's just giving you a geographical, uh, you know, a uh, painting of what it was like to grow up in Penny Lane. So I just love the two of them. But that really is the answer to that. Paul just had more idea of empathy and love than John was uh, was akin to in his younger days. I read through your book and you just used it, which is why I'm jumping to this question. The line, take a sad song and make it better. It, it, it's obvious on its face. Take a sad song and in some way make it better. But you seem to emphasize that the line has nothing to do with a sad song. It is a metaphor. You got a bad life? Well, make it better. You got a bad relationship? Make it better. Work on things. Am I pulling that correctly? Yeah, I mean, because the rest of the song tells you this. You know, you have found her, now go and get her. Let her under your skin. You know, don't hang on to the pain. Refrain. You know, you could do this. Hey, Jude, you'll do. It's it's a song of self-empowerment written and sung in the second person, which I think is brilliant. And one of the psychology professors said to me, think about it. We're able as listeners to step one step back. He's not saying you got to get going. You got to do this. He's saying Jude does. And you are able to reflect from that and say, yeah, you know what? I'm a lot like Jude or I'm a lot like Paul. I got somebody in my life. 
I can lend a little helping hand to. But it's not a helping hand like all you need is love or give peace a chance. It's not a grandiose statement that John would make because that's what John, that's where John's art went. Paul's simply saying, you could make this better. I, I, I quote the, the Gandhi statement, um, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. First, you be it, and then you could see it change. So he puts it in there. And, and I thought one of the things that really hit home for me, Joseph, was that I, I was writing this book during the pandemic in 2020 and with, with the street protests of Black Lives Matter and all the other stuff. And then, of course, the beginning of January in January 2021, which happened at the Capitol, there was this there was this constant reflection of, wow, this is like 1968. And, the, and, and you know, the Vietnam protests and and the civil rights protests and all the stuff that was going on in Europe where they shut down Paris and shut down London and the youth uprisings. So you can't ever, ever separate the artist from his times. You know, uh, one of the professors, a musicologist, um, told me, I teach Beethoven, and I never just teach him in a vacuum. Beethoven was a living person. That his, his, his environment, his social and political surroundings affected his art. And in many ways, by, by Paul writing this song and the Beatles recording it and getting back to the top of the heap again, it was the number one song of 1968. And you have a hard time arguing that there might have been a worse worldwide year aside from maybe 2020 with the pandemic, the 1968. So uh -huh. that was a song that people clearly wanted to hear, and they wanted to hear it from their leaders, their social, fashionable, social leaders, and that's the Beatles. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Hey, speaking of the lyrics, there's a great story, and you do relate it in the book, that McCartney came to John Lennon and said, hey, look, I got this song. And he sang it with the lyrics that you hear on the record. And apparently he said a lyric and stopped and said, now I'm going to change that. And Lennon said, you will do no such thing. He said, well, it doesn't mean anything. And John said, I know what it means. Do you know what the lyric was that he sang? Well, it's, um, you know, the movement you need is on your shoulder was kind of like scrambled eggs when he wrote yesterday. It was a placeholder. That's what Paul did. Paul wrote from the melody. Melody came to him and then he just figured it out. John wrote more lyrically, as we know. Uh, he, had, he was a published author. He wrote limericks and, and poetry. Paul did too, but he worked from the melody down. And so he, he would often do that. And it's interesting to note that when he was driving out to Weybridge, where John had lived since the Beatles became famous, he bought a mansion out there and lived with his family. He was driving out there to comfort Julian and uh, Cynthia. He would often drive out there for years and wrote dozens, dozens of Beatles songs on that ride out. And that's when he conjured the melody, hey, Jules, don't make it bad. You know, you're going through this terrible time like I did when I was 14 and lost my mom, or like your, your father did when he lost his dad and then eventually his mom. You know, you, you could do this. You know, he, he, he just put it in as a placeholder. But I think it's so romantic. I think it's so adoring that John, his mate from his teenage years, who had been through all that stuff with him, from the dark days of losing their mothers to, you know, all the work through Hamburg and, 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 and um, Liverpool and getting to be the superstars that they were, he immediately rec recognized this song as, as a real sense of empathy. And he identified it as, it's about me and Yoko. 
It's almost like it's weird. Paul was saying this to comfort, you know, these people that John left. And John took it as an approbation of finding Yoko. You found her. Now go and get her. Let her into your heart. And Paul, of course, just met Linda. So that's all going on, right? And and so this this very opaque line, John being a wordsmith, normally when he would drive out to Weybridge and meet, you know, John and say, I got the song, Drive My Car. Or I got the sign, song, Day Tripper. John would be like, nah, you need to change that. We got to fix that. But he never did that. Hey, Judy said, no, man. You're not changing that line. Yeah, I know I, what it. I know what it means, and and that's it. And Paul, to this day, yeah. when he plays it, he said he told Bob Costas in the early '90s, "I always think of John. I take that moment, and he's there with me because that's what John gave to Paul. And 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 I think that's the greatest compliment because John never gave compliments to Paul on his songwriting, always on his bass playing or other things. And for for John to say that, it was almost like this is fine the way it is. You don't need me, and that is very endearing to me. It, it was obvious in the Disney Plus series that, especially when they were creating Get Back, he was going, duh, 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 and John would go, bop, 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 and there it would be. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. there. Let me, let me just go a completely different direction. I don't know if I'm going off in the weeds here, but as a professor, uh, I take, it's almost every semester now, I teach audio production. And even the, the cheapest even free little audio DAWs, a DAW means a digital audio workstation, they allow you to have an insane amount of tracks. And if I wanted to, I could put 24 tracks in these. This song was recorded in eight tracks. And furthermore, it's the first song that was recorded in eight tracks. Everything else was done in four. The simple idea that these songs exist blows me off the map yeah yeah and they sound so damn good and yeah. they're not dated unbelievable. unbelievable unbelievable they're not dated these songs sound as fresh as they did then i mean i know that there are some moments in sergeant peppers and other things where it's clearly a 60s you know milieu but i mean hey jude is hey jude that's why i wanted to write a, a book about one song i picked hey jude because it was a song that haunted me since i was five years old and it kept coming back in different points of my life uh, even up to the point where i decided i'm going to write this book because it was the last song i heard before my father passed in 2019 so it's a song that i wanted to delve into but you could say the same about somewhere over the rainbow you could certainly say something the same thing about you know someone to watch over me or both sides now or hallelujah it, it, you know there are songs that just transcend their times and this is one of those songs for me and i'm sure there's many beatles songs but but as you said the oral a u r a l genius of the beatles along with all their amazing engineers like jeff emmerich and of course george martin their producer is that they didn't make it fade they didn't make it uh maudlin they made it real and so that translates over the decades and as rob sheffield from rolling stone said in my book the beatles didn't happen they're happening and that's what you hear when you hear this and it's true when i delved into this book i found so many firsts it's it's you know like i said it's the longest running number one song ever for the beatles it's it was the at that time was the longest running at seven minutes and 11 seconds number one song ever recorded it was the very first song the Beatles recorded um, on a track, as you said, it was the first song they really recorded outside of Abbey Road Studios at Trident Studios, which was only open for a few months. Right. Um, you know, it was the very first single that Apple Records, which they just launched, 
would send out. And it's still a record to this day that it's the highest charting and biggest selling number one single from an initial release by any record company. So there are so many levels that I found out writing the book that it just showed you the immense gravitas and influence that Hey Jude had not only still to this day, but certainly in 1968. It's time for our second break, but we'll return to continue speaking with author James Campion about his new book, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude, on Rock School. Let me ask you a question that when I talk about the Beatles and I've interviewed a lot of people, I got to interview the guy who wrote all the questions for the Beatles Trivial Pursuit game. Here's my question to you. Why the Beatles? Why did they become the consummate group? Why not any of the other bands that came over with the British invasion? Why not any of the women? What is it about the Beatles that makes them, I shall add echo to this statement, the Beatles? Why the Beatles? Well, firstly, because um, aside from Motown, there really wasn't much quality rock and roll music, which was the music of the time. Now it's, it's hip hop and the, uh, the, the parlance of the younger people. But from, you know, 1948, 50, really 54, 55, till the mid to late 90s, guitar rock was the big teenage young people music. Mm-hmm. But in 1962, 63, you know, the story, Elvis goes in the army, you know, Chuck Berry is arrested, Jerry Lee Lewis marries his cousin and is, you know, ostracized, Little Richard becomes a preacher, Buddy Holly dies in a plane crash in 59, and then there's all these Bobby this guy and Bobby that guy and Fabian <laughs> and all these, you know, teeny boppers things, and here come the Beatles. Bobby. <laughs> They're all named Bobby. For some yeah, reason. yeah, you're right. Uh, right. Maybe because of the Bobby Fox, I don't know. So... Uh, here come the Beatles, and what the Beatles do is genius, right? They come here, they're 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 pansexual. No one knows if they're guys or girls. What the hell's with these haircuts? They're all dressed the same. They're an army. They sing beautifully and they write gorgeous songs. Let's let's put the underline of that. They were good, damn good. They were damn good live, and then they became record makers because there's a difference between great songs and great records. They became great record makers, and then for a point there in the late '60s, that's all they did. Uh, and then finally, they brought the greatness of rock and roll back to America. They fed us the stuff that made it great. All those black artists, even those white country artists that couldn't, you know, pee in a pot and toss it out a window, that became popular for a very, very short amount of time from 55 to 57, 58. They were forgotten about. It's amazing, completely forgotten about. And the Beatles come charging and going, no, 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 no. This music is great and it's here to stay. It's modern, it's hip. We love it in England and we're going to show you why it's great again. And then finally, I think... It was their humor. They never took themselves seriously. You don't see too many, except for Rubber Soul and the cover, which I think is the greatest Beatle picture, the cover of Beatles for Sale, where they just look exhausted. There's not a lot of preening and posing with the Beatles. And I love the Stones, but they're all, they all look like they're about to mug your mother. <laughs> and every rock and roll band after them all took pictures like they're going to mug your mother. Yeah. So... So the Beatles are, are, they appeal to everything and everyone. And many people will say, listen, if you appeal to everything and everyone, you're really not appealing. 
if you don't have a starting quarterback, if you have two starting quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. If I could use another, you know, uh, sports metaphor, yeah. you know what I mean. If you if, if if you're just going for the big massive thing, like Mark Twain said, you're going to lose integrity. But the Beatles never did because they 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 showed us the way they experimented. They never said did the same thing twice, and because they're not dated, so they still, as Rob Sheffield said, are happening. And I think that is very unique. So that's my three minutes on why the Beatles. And it's it it's easily the best answer and when you made the statement in your answer there that those who came from england simply sold us back what we gave them oh it's absolutely true you said you were a stones fan the delta blues have been in the united states since the 30s well you didn't listen to it but now these guys are doing it and all of a sudden you care about it yeah now and I and I and I I stand on the fence with the appropriation of black music. I certainly understand when you think about Perry Cuomo or some of these other people, Pat Boone recording, you know, uh, Bebopalula or you know, uh, Tutti Fruity. It's ridiculous. I mean, that's an appropriation. White people buying black records because they weren't buying or they weren't privy to black records. But because of Sun and Stax, those great record uh, companies from the South, because of Elvis, who I do uh, still credit with a person who combined rhythm and blues with Southern Baptist gospel better than anybody and the first guy to do it. But also the fact that a lot of these these black artists, you mentioned it. The Stones introduced me to Muddy Waters, who I got to see live before he died. Ooh. Chuck Berry, who I got to see live before he died. Count Basie, who I got to see live before he died. And all the people who came out of there, Howlin' Wolf, and everybody you mentioned, Little Walter, and the great chess records, which I just visited this past summer. Um, it's just all because the Stones played these songs. And I said, oh, I looked at the thing. I'm like, who's Willie Dixon? You know, <laughs> I ran back and bought <laughs> Willie Dixon records. So yeah, man, yeah. there's no question about it. And that's why I think... There, we need to pay attention to the appropriation of black music by uh, white performers, but we also need to remember that that's how it was. It was the Trojan horse that got this music to the middle class, the white middle class that bought records. And that's Domino to the day he died. Said that if it wasn't for Ricky Nelson, I would have been died a pauper. Hmm. So Ricky Nelson, this little white kid that was on a TV, really white TV show recorded Fast Domino songs, who was, as you said, a, a hit maker in the 40s. Nobody listened to, except for maybe Blueberry Hill, yeah. was able to get that music to a wider audience. And well, however you get the music, to me, the music is colorblind. However you get the great music, I'm all for it. Well, Willie Dixon was who the Led Zeppelin folks decided to copy and make themselves popular. I think the Beatles were lightning in a bottle that will never be done again. Remember Duran Duran came out, they're going to be the next Beatles. And somebody else came out and they're going to be the next Beatles. It'll never happen again because the, the uh, what do you call it, the variables of the time have moved on. The Beatles were great, in my opinion, because they were smart enough to start in 1963 rather than... Timing 19... is everything. Yeah, Timing before 1973. Everything. Do you believe yes. they were better with the four of them together, or do you think the solo stuff 
lives up to the Beatles. That's interesting, but I want to let that last uh, thing you mentioned kind of go by the wayside because I think it's very important to note, as you mentioned, timing is everything. You can't be the new Beatles because there's already the Beatles. You're right. I mentioned in my Kiss book, the Beatles loomed over everything. Even Kiss built their whole model after the Beatles. We want to be a gang. We want to paint our faces just like they had the same haircuts and suits because we want to let everybody know we're walking down the street, this is what you're getting. So if you you could make the argument that Muddy Waters created the electric rock and roll band. Bass, Hmm. Fender bass, electric guitar, drums, you know, electric harmonica, and then after that, the Beatles. You get the Beatles who present this idea that thousands of people from Tom Petty, you can't, there's not enough who said, I want to do that. I got to get, and how do I do that? I got to get another guitar player. I got to get a bass player or I got to get a drummer. If I'm a drummer, I got to get two guitar players. And get, that's what you need. Right. And the background harmonies and all the things the Beatles did. So they kind of invented this thing. So there's no way you can be a second Beatles. And that leads me in a little segue to answering this other question. Okay. And that is how can you be John Lennon without Paul McCartney? You can, of course, but you can't, there's no, John, John Lennon can't come out cold and be like, I'm John, it's the same reason why Julian Lennon couldn't make a record in the 80s without everybody going, oh, he sounds like his father, he looks like his father, his father, his father, his father, even to the point where his new record's called Jude. He's hmm. finally embraced the fact that people know him as Jude. It's so sweet. And even the cover of the record that just came out last year, the year that my book came out, has the same handwriting as Paul. On, on the cover. So it's like you can't be Julian Lennon without John Lennon. You can't be John Lennon without Paul McCartney and the Beatles. So no, they will never hold up on that uh, measures, measuring stick. But I make the point in my book that it's okay that Paul was able to be Paul without John looking over his shoulder and saying, no, 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 no that's too cute. Or no, 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 we don't do funk. I mean, there's an old joke, you know, that John joked with George Harrison that we don't do waltzes. Meanwhile, like five John Lennon songs are waltzes. So I don't know what he's talking about. My point is, George didn't didn't have Paul and John telling him he can't do it. And, and, And Ringo was able to record, you know, an entire album of like, you know, Sentimental Journey of old songs he knew as a kid. He could never do that in the Beatles. So I think it's kind of sweet that the Beatles were able to grow up and remember, the Beatles, the entire entirety of the Beatles' career, they were never even 30, which is stunning. They, they were done by the final. Anybody in that band was 30. Maybe Ringo was 30 for a couple of months, but you know what I mean? So they were still really kids. And so they were able to mature and do their own thing. And I think that there's something valuable about that. You know, I just finished listening, or I'm, I'm in the midst of listening to that seven inch box set that just came out, which got like 80 songs and 100 or 160 songs, 80 singles that McCartney put out in his solo career. Right. And there's so many brilliant songs in there, but you kind of, unfortunately, they were fluffed off because they're the same the Beatles. James, thank you for spending some time with us. <laughs> thank you, Professor. And if anybody wants a copy of the book signed, I do mail out to the contiguous United States. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Mine's not signed. Where is this? Mine's not signed. Where did you get your book? I don't know. I guess it was your, your PR person. Oh, yeah. See, if you got it from the... You see, you're too cool for school, man. You didn't get it directly from me. It would be my honor to mail you a personal copy that you could get. But yes, for people who want to buy it and not get it, you know, because they're the press or they're the, you know, insiders, I will sign it for you. (laughs) I'm the media. You You deserve a copy. Come on, sign. Yes. Yeah, good enough. All right. Hey, I'm going to say goodbye. Hang on. I will say uh, I'll talk to you after we finish this recording bit. Okay, James, thank you. Okay, 
Cause you're sweet and lovely girl It's true I love you Living every 